Hello and welcome to the Barton Legal Podcast. I'm Bill Barton, a solicitor who lives and breathes construction and engineering law. At Barton Legal, we help clients in the UK and around the world on everything from litigation and arbitration to drafting and negotiating contracts. And in this podcast, we unpack the latest legal trends and problems facing the industry, providing you with straight-talking insights to help break down these complex legal questions. So, let's get on with today's episode. Well, hello, Roberta, and welcome to the first Barton Legal Podcast. It's fantastic to have you here. So a conversation with me. So it's a great honour for me. I think it's step down for you. <laughs> no, it's a tremendous honour for me too. I should properly introduce you. So it's Roberta Downey, who's currently Head of International Construction at Vinskin and Elkins. I think it's better. Could you introduce yourself in under 60 seconds? So a, a quality elevator pitch 60 seconds about you that's almost like a challenge in itself isn't it well i'm roberta downey i'm a, a head of the international construction practice at vincent and elkins i've been doing construction disputes for just over 30 years now and absolutely love it okay and that that leads actually me uh, into the, the first thing i want to ask you about because how did you feel in 2022 Legal 500 described you as London's queen of construction litigation. Well, I mean, I loved, right? Of course, it's a complete joke. First of all, I have a very small kingdom, if you like, right? Because there's not that many women in construction and there's not that many women in construction law either, more than actually in in, in construction in terms of engineering, but it's not a huge market. So um, I am by no means under any illusion as to the size of my uh, kingdom, except that there isn't a king of construction. So it's come off one person's view, right? One person's comment that they particularly liked, as these journalists always do. But I have to say, I do think it helped me. And I, one client gave me, uh, who I got after that, I think they gave me a job on the back of that, that quote. I don't know, but they gave me, I've got a flask in my room, I can show if you like, uh, up here. It stores tea or water. There you go. Queen of construction. It also says geology, seismology, pub quizzes, and taxi bookings. Because that's the things that I've done with that particular client. What a what a great accolade that is, and and that's quite quite a, an immediate journey. Because I was also interested in you know having having a look at all your sort of background it's quite interesting i'm a very nosy person i love i love finding out about people <laughs> but you you wrote an article for international women's day where you touched on imposter syndrome yeah and has that been a difficult thing and, and i think it's particularly important for for women because it it's a difficult thing to come into what historically has been an incredibly male dominated arena Yes, it is. I mean, I, I think imposter syndrome, everybody has it. Anybody who's good has it, is my, my experience. Otherwise, it's just arrogance, right? But I think we all have it. So when I, when I started out as a young construction lawyer, I have to say that most clients did not rejoice when they saw me walk into the room and think, oh, my God, my lawyer's a woman. And even worse, she's blonde. Right, I'm now going whiter, but then I was blonde. So that was a complete nightmare. And so it was difficult in that sense. And I remember at one point going into a business meeting 
going into the room, a conference room, with a new client who'd never met me before. And it was the days before video conferences and the internet. So they weren't able to look me up and see what I looked like. And I came into the room and they said, oh, will I have a, you know, a coffee, please, with milk and sugar? And so I sat quietly, I made them the coffee, and then I put it down in front of this client and I said to him, that will be the most expensive cup of coffee you have ever had in your life. Um, and so when I, at the young end, I think using humor with it is, is easy. Then after, as I got older, and once you show people that you know your stuff and that you can talk about commissioning and the sequence of, of work and a critical path program, that sort of thing, they suddenly actually think, oh, it's quite nice I've got a woman as a lawyer. And I have to say that I think most clients, if I ask them, would you like to go for dinner and do something in a BD way, they're more likely to say yes, because human nature is, you know, people don't like to sit, two blokes don't like to sit in a restaurant, feel less comfortable sitting in a restaurant, maybe not so much nowadays, but certainly in those days. Uh, And it's always nicer to sit with a somebody who's different uh, and got a different background. So people say yes to me more. And I think I can now stand out more. The, the point, as you say, about being queen of construction is because I'm a woman, right? They wouldn't single out a man in the same way as they've singled out. So it's easier now for me to have an impact or be more memorable than than it would be for a man. But at the beginning, it was hard. I mean, I had another client who once said to me, again, when I was younger, you know, um, well, uh, well, cement. It's like when you're making a cake, and I and you mix them. And I thought I don't make cake that tastes like cement. And I do know the difference between cement and concrete. But once you show them that, they're actually very nice. It, it's strange, isn't it? How how the whole industry has developed. I can remember going round the main exhibition centre in Birmingham when it was being built <clears throat> when I was a trainee. So we were walking around as a group of Birmingham law students and it's just basically a shell building at that stage. And this is over 30 years ago. And we did actually have a couple of uh, women in in the group and one of them asked where the toilets were. And the bloke showing us round just laughed and he said, everywhere is a toilet. And she said but where do women go? And he just looked at her and in an absolute straight face said, what women? You know, it's just like women on a building site. It's just, it's remarkable. I always look at, say, the SCL lunch and how the proportion of, of women there has changed. And I agree with you. It's, I still don't, I don't, still don't think our, our industry is, is diverse enough, but it's actually, I think it's, it's, it's still very difficult for women to get into construction do you, do you think that no i think it's i think it's actually i don't know what it's like getting into an engineering school or into a, a into a company as opposed to the legal side i think universities and and companies are open to gender diversity and my clients certainly they are always trying to attract but it's difficult to attract i think the task of actually working on sites around the world is quite hard if you want to have a normal family life, but I think it's hard for men as well, right? You do three years in Saudi and then three years in Bahrain and then three years in Oman uh, and then three years in Australia. It's quite hard to keep children in the same school if you want. And so that makes it quite a hard choice for women to be engineers. But as a lawyer, 
I think it's actually easier. We we in our in our practice here at VE are female dominated in the construction team. I think it, it's a really fantastic job. You get lots of of good work at the top of the game. You do travel into places, you know, the clues in the name, international construction. It's a word international. You will have to leave your your office. So you have to have a desire to do that. But you meet the most amazing people around the world, the, some of the cleverest people you, you you get to work with on great jobs and you look outside your window. And I think what makes it so good is that is that you what you see is real, right? It's tangible. The law is always good because the money's so big that it fights all the way and we make, make law. So for a woman to get in, it's easy. It's an easy area of law. I th- I, and, and I think the world has changed. It's, it's just like STEM. You know, all the efforts have been done, and it starts at school age, right? At school age, they've been pushing girls to do STEM and not just to do mm. humanities traditionally, and boys to do humanities and not just feel they have to full STEM. But everyone played to their strengths. And I actually think construction projects, it, women are really well suited to in law. It's masses of material. It's all, it, There's two skills, right? One of its project management, one of its being created, and the legal theory. And I think maybe I'm a bit unfair, but I think women have those uh, skill sets naturally in spades. And so I think it suits them. And now the industry really welcomes it. Yeah, and and, and also another skill set is, is listening. I think women are particularly yep. good at, at listening. And and I I think construction, you've touched on it, is such an a, an amazing area to be in because yes you can sit at your desk and you can have lots of paper but there are those opportunities just as you as you have said to go to site and I can remember from an early stage the thrill of well first of all being sent to a car park where no one actually told me to take wellies you know and you turn up in the porter cabin and they look at you and they know you're a you know back then it was a an article clerk because you've got muddy muddy shoes but the, the, but the next time you turn up you know you've got wellies but you actually see what you've you're you're writing and talking about don't you and you can see yeah. the physicality i love that i absolutely love that and actually today this afternoon after this i'm going on a site visit pitching for a job and i invariably say when i pitch for a job can I, can I, even if I don't win the pitch, can I come and see what it is you're doing? If it's, if it's somewhere I can get to, not just because it's a, a, a good way of showing interest in your client, but because I'm genuinely interested. I think we get to see things that other people just don't get to see. So I've been to an offshore wind farm. I've been out on the boats out to an offshore wind farm. I've been on the London Underground twice after after hours when it all shuts down and you go on and you walk the track to be able to see the engineering work faces. I've seen paper recycling facilities. You just sort of think things that you would never normally see. Of course, then when you go around to other people's houses, you show um, you know a, a boring amount of interest in their drywall and, and plastering and and the, you can recognise a water pipe from an electric. <laughs> uh, so it, it does give you a really interesting, but you just see things. And as a result, now I'm really into those programmes like the abandoned engineering or on TV or the um, London Underground, you know, Transport for London do these disused uh, stations. And it's just fascinating. But yeah, you do have to be with your people when you're watching those kind of things. Because I have to say, the family's not so keen on watching that. No, I have to say, I, I do like, I love watching the, the BIM ones 
but before I come to so if you've gone to offshore, did that mean you had to do helicopter dunk, uh, dunking training? No, I didn't. So I, um, uh, if you did only you do before? that, you're actually taking a step off the boat actually onto the oh, monopath. Okay. So they wouldn't let me do that. I was allowed to go on the prow of the boat right up there holding on, but I wasn't allowed to take the step from that onto the because then you'd have to do the like wearing all the kit and going yeah. in water that was one of my big regrets I, I did a, a number of uh, wind farms years ago and then we were working on one offshore and the client was going to take me and I got really excited about the fact that I was going to have to do this helicopter crash course which was actually far more interesting at the point than going out to see a monopile in the, in the north sea and then anyway um there were storms and, and things came and i never got to do it yeah but there are those things that they give you a sort of a, a really a great buzz and it's interesting yeah. you talk about paper plants i actually sat and watched uh last week 30 minutes of how you make cardboard so <laughs> my kids were asking about my wife and i said i was watching a film about how you make cardboard and it's because i've done a lot of recycling plants yeah, yeah. And, and i think they they are absolutely assured that i'm ready for a home but I, I, you know it, the plant itself is amazing it was in america and and it, there's so much in these buildings you know because there's the the recycling element it has its own energy facility yeah. and it, you and it's the the size and scale of you know cardboard is something everybody just takes for granted, but somebody somewhere is is building a plant to manufacture cardboard. What's the most? What would you say? What's the most bizarre site you've had been to? I mean, I, the London Underground really is interesting because it's historical, and I think that's where you're lucky if you're in London and you're doing projects in London. So another good project uh, that I had a fantastic site was at Battersea Power Station. Read about that. Oh wow. And to be able to go into Bassey Power Station before it, you know, was refurbished and to see how that, I don't know if you've been down, but it's been completely transformed. It's the most amazing project. And I didn't know that Bassey Power Station was built in two parts. So, right. and I'm not sure that many people do. It, it was, it, it stopped, it was uh, decommissioned in the 80s. But the first part of Bassey Power Station was built in the 30s and before the war. And inside, it's the most beautiful. You would never imagine it's an industrial building. Parquet floors, Italian marble, the engine room, the switch room is, if you've seen the film, uh, The King's Speech, where George V is doing a, a speech on radio and there's all the dials, that's filmed there. But loads of films have been filmed there, like Superman, King's Speech and, and various others. And so that bit was built in the 30s. And then, of course, there was the war. And then in the 40s, after the war, they built the other half of the station. And it looks as if it's always been for, for cooling towers, for chimneys. But there's actually, it was built in these two parts. And the refurbishment that they've done for that, they've, they've really, and you'll like this because there's an, I think it's a Yorkshire angle, the bricks are very bespoke. They are not standard measurements by these days at all. But some guy, I think it's in Yorkshire, got the contract in the 30s for the bricks. And because it's all a listed building and they want to use it, when they started doing the refurbishment now, that family business who makes all these bricks by hand has got this huge contract. And I think, I can't remember the figure, but it's some incredible price per brick. 
and they've done it so nicely. But to go in and you saw it so derelict because so many projects and so many dreams yeah, had started and been on that site. But to have seen it, it go through that transformation, it really is like, you know, something else. So I think that's probably, you know, I love it going every project, but that's probably because it's an iconic site. It's so, so, such a big part of not just London, but of the, of the UK. Um, and it's lovely to see industrial buildings converted and given a, a new lease of life. I mean, I also worked on the King's Cross stuff. And so, again, you see these areas completely get a new a new lease of life and what it gives back. It then means more than just a project, right? It's it's a real transformation. And Bassley Power Station's been there for a long time. It's going to be there for a hell of a long time more. I, lo- I love that element to construction. It's that longevity. And I, I'm always yep. very conscious as as a lawyer that, you know, I'm not a massive fan of, of litigation. I prefer the non-contentious side because I think at least I can feel I'm contributing to something by drafting a contract that helps. To, just as you say, you, you have you have buildings that people have probably walked past, millions of people have walked past yeah. millions of times and suddenly has a new lease of life. You know, when I first started going to London... King's Cross was known for something else in those yeah. days than than it is now. And I, I say that to people and, and they just sort of look at you blankly because they've only seen King's Cross in its sort of more recent splendour. Uh, yeah. And I love the fact that buildings really touch people. Um, so in all your your work, you, ha- you have a high, high power job. You know, How do you cope with stress? How do I cope with stress? Probably like you, swear a bit occasionally. That's there sometimes. I don't know. I think I've I've been really, really lucky both in in work and in in my my home life. My family are very supportive. I come from a family of lawyers, so they know that this is just just the deal, and it's always been like that. So last year, for example, I had to work all of Christmas Eve and not go to a family thing. But my family, there was, I never get any grief. So that makes it easier. At work, I've always believed that work, and I grew up under great people like the original Nicholas Gould, not the Fenicelli one, but the Nicholas Gould that was at Lovell's and John Gers. And they just said, if it's all going uh, okay at home, but it's difficult at work, you can cope. If it's difficult at work, but okay at home, it works. When it's difficult in both, that's when the wheels fall off the wagon mm. and that's when you've got to come and tell us. And I grew up in that sort of an environment where we were like a work family and I always tell my team here that they are like my work family and it means that I might give my team a hard time or they might give me a hard time, but God help anybody from the outside who, and when I talk about the outside, I even mean outside construction within my own firm. Right. So it can, but, and you then stick together. And like a family, there'll be some black sheep and there'll be some odd people, but it all works if you all think we're like a family and I'm not going to let somebody down. So I think coping with stress, in some ways, I, you don't notice it really because you've got a supportive family. And when I've been, I'm on the other side, I, I like the contentious stuff. I do anything from contract signature, and that's the, my closest to your end where it's sort of, let's try and be nice and reasonable. And at the other end, where where we're all in the trenches and fighting, when I've been in the trenches, I always say again, it's really important to 
you are in the trenches to light the person in the trench with you. And I've been lucky that I choose barristers that will roll their sleeves up and I, I choose experts who are like-minded and we're all moving together. It is amazing how many times when I'm in a, a courtroom or an arbitration room where my team is like that, my barristers, my experts, my witnesses are all working together but the other side, they're in silos. So I think the way to cope with stress is you choose the people around you very carefully. You choose them at home, you choose them at work, you choose them uh, and, and they will support you. And they're also the people, because they know you the best, they're the people that can spot where the stress, because I think the hardest thing with stress is to spot that you're under it. You need other people outside or you need something external you know some people have collapses or I get a rash that comes up when I'm stressed I think it's great advice I, I was lucky that my first sort of proper boss in construction was Frances Kirkham who subsequently became yeah. a, a judge and she as you said she was incredibly protective of us and she made clear that you know as the boss the buck stops with her something I strongly believe in but you know, equally, God help us any, you know, if we cock something up, you know, she, she let us know. But we also knew that she would get very cross with us. But it was because she genuinely cared. And I think you're right that working together as a, a team and a family, I'm I'm equally, I'm, I'm amazed that people instruct barristers or experts they don't get on with because... In litigation, it's a long. You know, we do a lot of litigation, so it's long running. If you can't, if you can't get on and have a laugh with counsel or your expert, you know, you're in for a rocky road because you, just as you've described, you're going to spend many hours locked in a room at, at some stage or another. But you, you it's said the same true of clients. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah. You have to yeah. like your clients and. Most of my clients, they end up becoming friends, right? Because you spend a huge amount of time where they bear their souls to you. Especially if something, if, if, if you see me as a client, it's bad news, right? Something's gone wrong. It's not that you want to do some deal. Something's gone wrong and it's probably gone horribly wrong. Uh, and you're going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of money. So you... You are in the trenches and they've got you do spend an awful lot of time together. Um, and I always say that there's, you, you can get two kinds of lawyers, those who will tell you what they think and those that will tell you what you want to hear. And most, unfortunately, are all the ones that will tell you what you want to hear. I will always tell you what I think. And so sometimes that can be quite a, you know unpleasant conversation, quite a rough conversation, but they always appreciate it afterwards because it's better to, you know, like Don Corleone, better to hear bad news straight away. I quite agree. There aren't enough. There aren't enough lawyers. I agree with you. Who are you know? It's about stand, not standing up to your client, but you do have to deliver bad news, hard news. Um, so I hadn't realised you, you come from a family of lawyers. I think is it right that you studied geography at Oxford? I did. So, so, that's why I. That's why I've got the. So the you know, I did the geology bit. Yeah. So why? Why did you go and do geography? Did you plan, I'm going to do geography, but switch to law? Or did you actually think, I'm interested because yeah. um, I did a law degree, but I actually wanted to do geography. Um, I think I'm a bit older than well, I, I should have done. But back then, the only thing you could do with geography was teach. And I just thought, God, I could never teach, even though you actually now spend a lot of time as, as a lawyer teaching. So yeah, I was like, what was the, what made you do geography? 
So um, there's quite a few things that I can pick up on there. The first is I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I guess the biggest thing and the, one of the lessons I tell my children, but also my team here, is that life is accident. Most people have not chosen to be. I didn't choose to become a lawyer, let alone to become a, a, a construction lawyer. It's a series of accidents, which is a bit like natural selection, right, and, and, and Darwinism. So that's how I got here. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was leaving school and I was very good at uh, history and geography and I didn't know what to do. And quite frankly, I had a soft spot for my geography teacher. He was very, very nice. And he asked me if I'd like to try Oxford. A week later, the history teacher asked me if it'd been the other way around, I would have done history at university. But the point is I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew or I thought I knew what I didn't want to do. And that was, I didn't want to be a lawyer because my father was a lawyer. You never saw him. They worked very hard. Uh, and I just thought, you know, it's a set of rules. And then when I finished my, I was coming up to my third year uh, final exams at university and my tutor, you know, was asking me, what did I think I wanted to do? And I had absolutely no idea. And I'd written a very good dissertation on limestone geomorphology. So right up in Yorkshire away, oh, but it was do. in China. I did it in China. And I and I and I loved the site visits in China, or they were called field trips, and they said geography field trips. I said I don't know, and she said, well, I think you know, why don't you go and do a PhD? And and I thought, well, okay, fine, I'll I'll do that because I don't know what to do. I'll kick the can down the road, but I was going to do it in um, New Zealand, University of Auckland, because they got the particular limestone that I was um, interested in, uh, and particular specialism. And and but at their academic year starts differently to ours it starts in February so I was going to have time to kill and I needed to raise money and so she said have you ever thought of teaching at Eton you know the boys school <laughs> sort of thing that never crosses your mind so I said no um, I haven't and she said well you know they're looking for someone for a year to cover a sabbatical why don't you go and interview for that and I interviewed for that so you talk about being a woman I was the first female teacher in a non sort of traditional a traditional um, subject. They had a woman who did some Russian a couple of days a week, part-time, and they had a, a woman that my mother would have said was a woman in comfortable shoes uh, teaching classics. And then they had me, 21, straight out of university, thrown into this all-boys school teaching geography. I can tell you, geography class attendance went up. Geography as a subject was much more popular, and I've never had so many flowers in my life. And that could have gone incredibly badly wrong. But it went really, really well. Um, and because I, and I, you know, at 21, you're trying to make yourself look older rather than younger. And the boys are so polite and it was so nice. to, And they, so they treated me so nicely. So I taught for a year and then I couldn't quite say, I wasn't very good at the saving the money bit. Uh, and so I didn't save the money and I had to think again what I would do. And one of my very good friends there, a guy called Stuart Leach, who's now a, a silk in divorce store. He was teaching French and he said, well, I'm going to go, you know, there, I didn't even know this. He said, you can go back and convert your degree into a law degree and there are law firms that will pay for you to do this. So <laughs> he and I both applied um, and, and and the rest is history, as you say. So that's how I became a lawyer. But my father used to always say to his friends, if anyone, I'm one of five children, would say, if anyone be a lawyer, be a reverter. And for years, I wasn't. Um, and both my brothers became lawyers, uh, elder brothers, um, and my my younger brother became a policeman. So it was like everyone was in the law of some form, except for me, but they got me in the end. 
they got you in the end. There's no escape. Yeah, my my kids are are, are definitely running the opposite directions, law. But that, that, so, so what was who was the biggest influence? Was your father a big influence on you in that, or was it was it you know other friends and families you came came through? Because it's very difficult. You know, I I come from a, a sort of long line of lawyers, and there's an element of of just wanting to do something different as you're growing up, but as you say, not knowing what you want to do, and and you'll look. I know I was going. I was looking for people outside of the family to sort of help me. You know, I say influence. What what was yours? My parents are so laid back; they're horizontal, and they are so unpushy that they are actually the opposite. And I, I sort of feel. My father's dead now, so he won't be able to hear me. But when I got into Oxford University, right, most people's parents, when you get into Oxford University, pretty pleased, right? When I mm-hmm. said to my mother, I got into Oxford, she said, that's nice, dear. That's what I got. That's nice, dear. I could have said to her, I've got three months in Borstal, and she'd have said, that's nice, dear. I mean, my sister once came home from having failed all GCSEs and uh, um, uh, uh, saying, I'm going to have to be a toilet cleaner. My mother said, someone's got to be a toilet cleaner. So I had no pressure at home, no interest. And my father actually was an academic and a barrister. So my father was from a very humble family. He's a scouser. He was from um, Birkenhead. And oh, okay. he, he, his father was a bricklayer. Uh, and so he had to get uh, scholarships and go through the grammar school system. And he did the civil service exams and passed and then during the civil service training they give you a, a law module uh, and he loved the law and then he went back and but because he was from such a humble background he couldn't just be a barrister because in those days barristers didn't give out grants no. and funding so he taught for um i can't remember it was two or three days a week at lse and the other two or three days he was practicing as a barrister oh. and then he got so busy uh that he had to decide whether he was going to be a full-time barrister or a full-time academic and a job came up in Hong Kong and he took it to open the law department in Hong Kong so my father had had the whole university at LSE at a Hong Kong university set up the law department there and at one point he was looking at Manchester at the same time but Hong Kong beat Manchester so we went to Hong Kong which is why I don't have a Manpinian accent um, <laughs> but the uh, the reality is because of all that he said to all of us when we were younger do something you love. And that's what I say to my children. And it was at school, but it's also at work. You spend so much of your waking time at work. You've got to do something you love. And at school, that's why, so he never pushed us to do law. I think he was very happy when when we did, but he didn't push any of us to do law. Yeah, it's brilliant when you, you can have somebody who's who's really had to work to get somewhere, and but is relaxed enough to still encourage you to just follow your desire rather than you know you know pushing you or encouraging you down a, a more narrow path yeah it, and it's interesting you talk about your your parents being laid back it's it, it's interpretation see I, I don't think my my parents um my mother cared particularly i remember doing a, a race once and i think probably the only race they ever came to watch me and this was um after when i'd started work it was a national cross country race, and her her ch- her shouts to me as I went by was, "Well done, William. You're not last," <laughs> which isn't isn't the most inspiring of shouts as you're 
clambering up some hill, but yeah, it didn't didn't necessarily inspire me. I, I try and try and go slightly better than that. So, so you started out really from a an incredibly hardworking and and travelled background. When you look forward to twenty twenty four, what what's what in uh, you know what are now your hopes and aspirations for either you personally, if 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 you're happy, and then you know what what are other you know what are your general sort of hopes and aspirations for the next year? What do you look forward to? More of the same. I've just had one case that's settled. I've got a couple others that are, are kicking off. But it's working on fantastic project with fantastic people, and that's my own team. I a, a, a bit that I feel very important for me now at this stage in my career, because, again, I, I, I was trained by Nicholas School. So when you ask about mentors, Nicholas School mm. was a, a, a huge mentor and still is a huge mentor and, and friend of mine. But it's that duty to create a legacy. My legacy in my family will be my children. My legacy at work will be to see the next generation of partners. So I I still see Nicholas and I know he loves seeing me and he's so proud of me, just like a, he would be of a child to see how my career has gone. And I think that's mm. my duty is to establish that for the next generation so that this tradition, and I think construction lawyers are different in that sense. Construction lawyers are friendly they're normal people they're uh, i don't know if you know tim elliott he has a test yeah, he, calls, he, he calls it the dinner party test construction lawyers and and construction clients they pass the dinner party test you would have them to your own home to have dinner with because they become friends and i see it as that being my next my next task is to build that family or embed it i think it's already here in my team here when i moved from levels i brought most of the team Everybody got an offer. Some chose to stay, but the team have kept together. And I, th- I think seeing those people grow gives me as much pleasure. Just like, I don't know, I mean, if you have children, you get so much pleasure of seeing how your children succeed. You also get terrible angst. Living life vicariously is horrific. And I find it the same here. I, I get real pleasure when I see somebody do their first advocacy or somebody get their first small job in themselves. It may be a tiny adjudication. It may not be much money in dispute, but they've actually gone out and won it or they do their first presentation. You have the same pride as the Mm. head of the practice as you do with your children when they are not last, William. And and I think think that's exactly right. Work is very is very family family orientated when it, it's working well because as you say you, you want to see people succeed. You're spending a huge amount of time teaching and, and encouraging them to learn from you. And and those of your team, I met quite a few of your team, I think, and and they're they're not only talented but they're also, and I think this is the the greater testament. I expect I expect them to be talented. You know that that to me is you know sort of a given. But I think what is missing with a lot of lawyers, with those of your team I've met, they're, they're lovely people. And, and that's something that comes from an environment. And I think it's something that's lacking. We're very lucky in construction. I think there are a much, much higher percentage of lawyers who practice in construction and are they're much more rounded in their life and person skills. And I think it's because, as you say, they go out to site. You know, one day you're meeting a managing director, the next day you're interviewing someone digging a ditch and, and you have to treat True. all with this you know equilibrium and it's and it's 
I love that aspect to it that you're always and I love as you say the teaching it's it it is a brilliant feeling when you see people really growing into their or into their into their life into their body and you can see they start to to get fired up in the same way as you uh, yeah I think that's a, I think that's a, a great thing to be proud of we say the construction people are just so normal and I think construction lawyers because we deal with that so when I first qualified, I qualified in a, a in this in this what was called the city litigation group, which was all about banking and finance, and it was just numbers and bearings of collapse, and it was derivatives. And, you know, I still don't know what derivative is, but I did a lot of litigation on derivatives. But it was those people just not real. Whereas when you go, as you say, you meet people in all sorts of walks of life. They're living in horrible places, often in a porter cabin drinking tea out of, or coffee out of a polystyrene cap and they will get paid a fraction of what the lawyer is and they but they really listen to you and they treat you in, mm. in the way that people used to treat lawyers and policemen and, and as a professional and they have no edges they they'll go to the pub and they're sort of they're amazed that they they meet people like you and it, I I told you my one my paternal grandfather uh, was a bricklayer from Birkenhead my maternal grandfather was an Austrian baron who gave up his title because he fought on the British side and so I had completely different wow. grandfathers but the Austrian grandfather said everybody takes their trousers off the same way at night and yeah. that in our family has always been and I think when you go around and see people construction lawyers are like that they you will have the people that are the barristers that are being paid millions and then you have the guy on site who's digging the ditch who's getting paid a weekly allowance in an envelope in cash or whatever as it used to be now a transfer of course but you know that's that walk of life and the lawyers realizing that we're privileged we're not better than them and don't mistake what you're paid with for the value that you add and i think construction lawyers are like that unfortunately i don't think all lawyers are like that no, I have a, um, as I've made clear on many occasions, I have a quite a low opinion of, of the legal profession generally. I think construction lawyers, solicitors across, you know, so lawyers, barristers and, and people connected do keep it keep it real, uh, as you say. And I think that's that's a lovely thing. It's You can never, you should never allow yourself to be up yourself because we are, we're, we're incredibly fortunate. And I think it's, I love the fact that you can, you just meet so many different people and and you see so many different things. It's a very very satisfying thing. But are some things you you mentioned at the very beginning that you know the difference between cement and concrete, and you referred to a cake. And I have asked other people this: What is your baking like? Because I have zero baking ability. Are, are you a good Are you a good cake maker? I am. I am. I well, but I didn't used to be. I mean, I grew up in Hong Kong, right? So we had maids uh, and people that waited on us. So I, I couldn't do Well, you do are aristocracy, aren't you? Background, so, you know. <laughs> I'm also a Brit. Yeah. All right. I've got. Uh, I, I, I. I. You know. I. I used to do cupcakes. That's what I used to do. I have a very sweet tooth. Oh. But I then uh, I have become a baker. So I had. Um, and I, actually, I've just finished this weekend. I just did my Christmas cake. I did it on a course. I did a two day making the Christmas cake, Caribbean Christmas cake, and I've done an illusion cake. So it looks like a roast Christmas dinner. It's a turkey wow. and Brussels sprouts. and, and That's I what only... we should do on the ICP weekend. Exactly, the ICP. I'll bring a cake. So, But I did once have as my team, as a bonding thing, 
I did make them do, we had four teams and we had to, I made the cakes in advance and they had to decorate them any style they liked, but it had to be a project. And they say so one did an airport, one did Battersea Power Station. They were cases that we were working on. Another one did a water theme park, but they did decorate them all. And they say, well, yeah, maybe we do that as a team, but it does take a bit of time and it is a bit of messy. But I tell you, it's fantastic to be so creative. But I started doing it because my, uh, and it's a, it's a good thing that I do, and I we always have cake at home, but my um, youngest son, I had an aunt who was fantastic, G, and she always used to make his birthday cake. And he'd say things like, I want the Death Star from uh, uh, Star Wars. And she'd make it. And she'd Ninja Turtles once. And it was the sewer with the little Ninja Turtles. It, what, then one year, she uh, she was 80. And she'd said, he, my son Henry had said, I'd like to have, you know, a World War II themed uh, party because he was uh, um, a cake. Because he was coming up to, I think he was like eight or nine or something. Mm-hmm. And I, so I gave her this spec. And then two weeks before his birthday, she said, Oh, I, you know, I'm now, I, I actually, I'm really struggling to do it. So I don't think I'll be able to make it. So I thought, that's fine. I'll throw money at the problem. I'll go and find it. God, it costs a fortune if you want to get a cake themed done and something off the peak. So I just, I couldn't get it. So I then, I had a really helpful friend who said, No, it's fine. You could just do, you could do something like the Dan Busters. I thought, how am I going to get a bouncing bomb cake? I've never decorated a cake before. But then I, so I did the beaches of Normandy and I've built it up since then. And because that's quite easy, right? You have one cake sand colored, one cake uh, blue, one cake uh, grass colored. And you, and then I bought the toy Belgian. You make it sound easy. I, I don't think I could even do make a beach. I think I could do something that was more sort of the blackened core of something. I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that you, you allowed your aunt to carry on until she was 80. That's very... <laughs> In our family, you all work long. You can do another year. Come on. Get on and work. Quite right. Yeah. I I think that's quite right. Um, My my wife is very good at at cakes and our daughter is, is very good at decorating. I'm very good at putting the candles in. Although... Well, there you go. What about the the eating? I'm not a massive... See, I, I, I... I just prefer like a sponge. I'm, I'm, I've got a very sweet tooth. Yeah, but you could do that. But, but I'm not massively into cakes and puddings. You know, I'd, trouble is, I'd, I'd be just as happy if you gave me a bag of wine gums. That, that's the, the honest truth. If someone's eating cake, if I'd said a bag of wine gums, I'd, I'd sit there happily munching those, and yeah, that well, keeps I tell me out of mischief. You then is a piñata cake. Is and I've done those before. We can pour out the middle. Uh, and, and just keep the top. and you fill it with wine gums, and then you put the lid on the top. I'll yeah, I'll send you a pic of my Christmas dinner cake. That would be good. So, in in finishing, and it's been lovely talking to you. You gave um, four top tips when you uh, spoke to international women's. You said think of leadership like a high school dance. Someone has to be first. Yeah. The best yes. idea prevails. Um, yes. Don't try and invent the wheel and make yes your default answer so you've got to choose what's your what would be your what's your piece of advice to anybody going into 2024 is it it those or something else yeah well all of those i i still adhere to say yes and i if you if you'd asked me one last thing i would have said that say yes to everything because it's for me life is an accident where I've got to and some of the things that you think are the most boring things end up being the best decisions you've ever made 
and nothing i i think that's the danger for my son's generation now is they're so nervous about making a mistake and they think they only have one shot at everything and the reality is you can always come and do rework right it can almost always be fixed but just say yes to everything because if you if you if you say yes and fail fine but if you don't say yes you don't even even get there i i sort of i remember once many years ago that I was invited to a lunch. I, you know how you look at your diary and you think, what have I got on today? And I suddenly saw this lunch in my diary and it was the annual lunch for the Institute of Gas Turbine Engineers. And I thought, what on earth possessed me to say yes to that invitation? Uh, because it's just really not going to be the most exciting lunch. I tell you, it's probably the best lunch, work lunch I've ever been to. I, I came, it was a bit like you said at the beginning, I came into the room that I was one of maybe four other women there. Um, the rest was completely full of of men. And I was at a table and on the table, there were these guys uh, on my left who were from Tunisia and it was just after the Arab Spring. So it was really interesting hearing mm. about that. And on my right were from a, a Barking Power Station and I'd done a case on the other side of Barking Power Station. So again, it was really interesting. And then the, the woman who gave a talk, they had a female speaker and she was the first you know, fighter jet pilot uh, in the oh, RAF with wow. the best planes, and she gave the most amazing speech. But if I hadn't said yes, I would have gone. And it's the same as if I hadn't said yes to my geography teacher, I wouldn't have done geography. And if I hadn't said yes to my tutor, I wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't have gone and done teaching. And if I hadn't said yes to go to law. So life is all about the yeses and not about the noes. I think, I think that's a fantastic advice. And I'm, I'm very, very touched that you said yes to the, to having a conversation <laughs> with me. I've really enjoyed it. I love your uh, your Father Christmas earrings. It looks like yeah, yeah. Uh, these are the tame ones because I got to do a pitch later. I have bigger ones, okay. but for a pitch, I thought I might get away with these. I'm I'm all for interesting earrings and men not wearing black socks. You know, big <laughs> mistake. Men should wear more brighter socks. I was once told off for for having. Um, my socks were too bright, and I was told to go home and change them. Really, I didn't. Have, I didn't, of course, and that was probably the start of my you know, legal rebellion. But I've really enjoyed uh, Me chatting too. with you, Roberta. I Me look too. forward to, to seeing you on many more occasions, and I'm 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 so grateful for your time. I think you're a fascinating person and someone who should inspire men and women alike. Everybody, it's uh, if you look at what you do and what you stand for I think it's it's a great thing we're very kind of thank you so much for asking thank you for joining me for today's Barton Legal Podcast please make sure you follow the show in your podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released we'll be tackling another important topic in this month's Barton Legal webinar and you can register for free and watch back our previous webinars at bartonlegal.com why don't you connect with me on LinkedIn and follow Barton Legal to keep up to date with all the legal trends and news. I look forward to speaking to you again in the next Barton Legal podcast. <laughs>